In these next two episodes of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Derek Reimer, co-founder of Drip, about building Level, the new team communication tool he's working on. In this first episode, we talk a lot about the product design decisions that have gone into the app so far, as well as Derek's decision to open source the entire product, despite the fact that he's building a real business around it and not just releasing it as a free tool. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 91. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, as always, and today it's my pleasure to be welcoming back uh, Derek Reimer, who was previously on the show uh, talking about Drip, uh, an app that he built uh, a couple years back that he actually recently left to start working on uh, the next big thing. So welcome back, Derek. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Adam. My pleasure. So uh, what is Level, this uh, app that you're uh, working on these days? Yeah, you know, it's just a little uh, a little app competing in the team communication space. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, from what I understand of it, the mission behind Level really is uh, to offer sort of a uh, less distracting, more calm alternative to a tool like Slack that's yep. sort of always kind of fighting for your attention and interrupting your work and stuff like that. So exactly. uh, I'd love to learn more maybe about just the initial motivation uh, behind this idea. What made you kind of want to build an alternative for this sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. So um, I think probably makes sense to rewind back to like the first time I used um, uh, Slack, actually. It was the first time I actually used real-time chat in the workplace, um, probably 20... 14, 2015, around the time that Slack really uh, started to become popular. Um, at the time, Drip was uh, a tiny team. It was just me, Rob, and I think one or two other junior developers at the time. And, um, you know, we, we had been sort of just relying on email and then a little bit of like Google um, chat here and there to, to quickly go back and forth. And um, I was like, you know what, let's try Slack. And I remember uh, Rob was skeptical at first. He was like, why do we need this so that we're always all online at the same time? This sounds, this sounds like it might be a distraction. And I'm like, you know, let's just give it a shot. And um, I think we all were pleasantly surprised that like it seemed to function pretty well for our team. Um, you know, we, we really didn't use a bunch of channels. Most everything happened in the general channel because it was just a few of us. And, um, you know, at the time we were, we were mostly distributed. We were sort of experimenting with having an office that we all came into part of the time, but, um, it really helped us feel like we were all in the same room all the time. And, um, you know, all the benefits that come from the quick back and forth, which is so, uh, such a key thing, I think when you're, when you're small. So I think, you know, I started out like many really loving having real time chat. Um, but gradually, our team started to grow, and Drip pre-acquisition grew to a team of nine. And it was, I would say, manageable. Like We were all pretty respectful of each other's uh, focus and didn't really tap each other on the shoulder too much. Um, but it really became apparent, well, one, when we moved into our our, our new office building um, in Fresno, and there was like 20 other technology companies in there, and they had a Slack uh, workspace for the building. And that was just a catastrophe. Like people were, you know, they, at channel, there's brownies in the kitchen downstairs yeah. or at channel. There's uh, hey, there's this event happening in a week. Would love an RSVP, you know, just things that were totally non-urgent that, you know, were being pushed through the notification barrier. And, um, you know, and just 
if you're not in it all the time, just popping into any given channel, like, uh, you know, and scrolling through, you know, unfiltered banter back and forth in these channels just seemed like this is a mess. So I ended up signing out of that one and, you know, my life was better for it. And then, and then, uh, you know, the, the drip ac- acquisition happened. Lead pages was a team of 150 people and, um, drip was still, you know, a team of nine, but we gradually kind of started to mesh together and, you know, the finance team and the customer support team all sort of started to mix. And so it made sense for us to be in, in the broader company wide slack and same thing happened that, that happened with the building slack. It was just, uh, very noisy, very hard to, um, to send transfer information to people in a way it's where it's like, this is not urgent, but I want to send it to you through the mode of communication that we've all decided is our default. You know, um, yeah. email was really reserved for like, you know, company wide announcements from the CEO or something like we really weren't using email a whole lot. I tried to convince people to, you know, sometimes use email for asynchronous things and use Slack for truly urgent things, but it just proved to never really, um, it never really happened the way I would have wanted it to happen. You know, um, I think it's just very hard to add that cognitive overhead of always having to try to choose the right tool for when you need to just quickly communicate with somebody, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I just, it, it became pretty clear to me that, you know, we've all sort of drank the Kool-Aid of Slack and it's so popular right now. And yet it's not the ideal default mode of communication. I think we can, we can do a lot better. So that's sort of where the initial motivation came. Awesome. So I think what would be interesting to get into, which I haven't really heard you talk a lot about in other places is some of the details behind like how the product is going to look like how you're tra- yeah. trying to solve these problems, what some of the pieces are, what you're going to be able to do, just trying to paint a better picture of like yeah. the solutions that uh, you've sort of been working on and ideas that you have uh, for solving this problem. So where do you want to start with that? What do you think is the best way to sort of talk about how this thing is going to work and how teams are going to use this tool? Yeah. So I think it may, probably makes sense to like um, state a few of like the the absolute differentiators that yeah. that I that I'm going to take. Um, you know, just different ways of approaching the problem than something like Slack does, and then from there I can sort of uh, expand, I guess, on yeah. some more nitty gritty details. Sounds good. Um, so yeah, so we all know that like Slack has the concept of threads that was added, um, I think, in the last year or so. It's like the but, worst thing ever added to Slack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's sort of the sentiment, and and I did in the um, early days, right after I kind of published the manifesto for Level, I did a bunch of customer development calls uh, into having calls with forty different. Uh, people and one of the questions I asked was, "What do you think about Slack threads? Do you use them? Do you find them useful?" And uh, it was pretty unanimous. Like, nah, we don't really use them successfully. It doesn't feel, yeah, doesn't feel right. So, so I think you know, uh, every conversation in level is going to be threaded by default, meaning that um, you know, when when someone wants to initiate a conversation. Uh, think of it sort of like a Facebook post where, yep. you know, there is a post that that contains the key information to kick off the conversation. And if you want to engage with that, then you're replying to that post. And so everything is is a thread. Um, and I actually think one of the ways to encourage like organizing communication in this way is to present things in reverse chronological order when you're viewing them in uh, in a group or a channel or whatever um so that someone's not tempted to you know respond to 
a different conversation in line as a new post. Like you just wouldn't you wouldn't do that on a platform like Facebook, for example, where totally you know yeah. it's very clear. That's an interesting there's a actually product decision. Yeah, I yeah. really thought about yeah. that. Like I was about to say, like yeah, you're right. On a Facebook group, if someone posted a a message, no one would ever post a brand new message that even reference that or was replying to that like that just doesn't make sense or feel right and i think uh it's interesting to point out that detail that the fact that the newest messages are kind of on top yeah but conversations read top to bottom means that adding a reply and having that appear before the thing you're replying to is just like this nudge that makes sure that no one would ever do something weird like that yeah and i think that's like an element of um of product design where you can sort of you guide user behavior through like making deliberate decisions like that about the product and i think one of the elements of pushback i've gotten about level is that you know people say well slack's not the problem it's not a tool problem it's a people problem and you just need Mm -hmm. to train people on how to better use the tools and the tool is actually fine and i i i think there's some kernel of truth in that where, you know, you can't, the tool can't force everyone to use it properly. Sure. But I think there's a lot of things you can do when you're designing products to, to nudge people to use it the way it should be used. And, um, you know, and, and when they see reverse chrono, but conversations are in true chronological order, it's like, of course I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be top posting. Whereas, you know, with with uh, Slack, I think that's one of the main reasons why threads don't work is because you basically end up with this split conversation yeah. every time. Like uh, even I would do it. You know, someone would post something, and it's just too dang tempting to just start typing in the box at the bottom because yeah, it's especially going to especially if someone replies first that way, and then someone else replies to the message as a thread right. after the fact. It's yeah, yeah. I think like the only way that threads could ever work in Slack is if every reply to a message was always done in a thread and that you never had like back and forth at the top level but of course no one's ever going to do that because that's like such a drastic change from how Mm -hmm. the thing was built to be used like threads were added after the fact so of course people are going to reply to each other just at the top level like they would in any chat room right right exactly yeah and i've i mean i've talked to a few engineering teams who there was one who said no we use we use threads judiciously and it's um you know, it all, it, it's all great. And it pretty much solved all our problems. And I was like, okay, how big is your team? Oh, we're a team of five and, yeah. uh, we're all engineers. So, you know, like I think as soon as you get, um, you start to get more of a mix, a blend of people who are, I would say engineers tend to be very process focused, you sure. know, and, yeah. and we, we are very particular about our tooling oftentimes. And so I think it's, it's like much easier when you're a small team and you're a bunch of like detail oriented process process oriented people, like maybe you can have the discipline to do that, but it doesn't scale. So, and I think it's just, you know, trying to train people to do something where the, the, the tool's not helping you choose the right path is just an uphill battle that can't be solved. Yeah. So for sure. So the Facebook uh, kind of messaging, like Facebook group metaphor, is that is that kind of like the the primary uh, kind of mechanism for conversations and stuff happening the way you you see it, or is that just kind of like one piece of the picture? Well, so that's so okay. I think that's the the way to think. It's probably the closest um, analogy to think about how how um, 
you know, conversations will be organized. And I think um, in level, I'm calling them right now groups as, as opposed to channels, because I think it, okay. it just makes more sense. So you would have a, say, a group for your engineering team, a group for your marketing team, a group for your support team. And, you know, that's sort of the area where if if you're just wanting to post some information to your particular sub team in your organization, then, you know, you will post to the appropriate group. Um, and, and, and then of course everything is threaded in there. Uh, but another key component is having an inbox. Um, I think this is, this is something that, you know, Slack has the, the unreads area where like you, you'll get kind of like snippets of channels of, yeah. of things where you you haven't read them. But as soon as you, of course, read them, it's then dismissed from your, from your unread. Totally. And um, there's nothing in there that really is like, um, is it for you? Is it just stuff you missed in the channel? Like it's just right. all kind of mixed together. Right. And so once you're, once there's a sufficient amount in there, I think the, the tendency is just to declare bankruptcy on it and say totally. mark all Click is red. And... Hit escape, move on. That is 100% yep. <laughs> the workflow. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's has almost, you know, very little utility, I think, uh, the way that Slack structures it. So I think, you know, um, we, sh- email has, uh, some aspects to it that I think we need to roll back in. Like we swung way too far away from the email paradigm with real time chat. And so I kind of think of level as positioned uh, neatly between email and chat. Mm -hmm. And the inbox is one of those core pieces that I think we need to reintroduce. And so basically the way I think about how the inbox works is, um, you know, the messages do have a notion of priority implicitly. Like if there's an emergency happening, some incident that, and I'm on that team, I want that to obviously sound a siren, send me a push notification, let me know right away. Yep. And then if there's something like uh, someone has a direct question for me where um, you know their work is being blocked until they hear from me specifically, maybe I'm their team lead or something like that, yep. then that carries more priority over just some message that's like, here's a piece of information about technology or something like that that was posted to a group. So that has lower priority. And then someone saying like, uh, good morning, everybody. Hope you have a great day. That's like, you know, nice to see, but obviously lower priority than something where, you know, it's actually related to someone's work. Right. Yeah. So I think there is like an implicit kind of hierarchy of importance and urgency that dictate where things should appear in your inbox and whether you should receive a push notification or not. Um, and I like to think of it as like, uh, we should get back to the mode where, you know, we are like pulling our inbox to see what what things are on our plate as opposed to things being pushed through with totally. push notifications. Yeah. Um, and I think if I actually think if a product needs to have do not disturb mode, then it's fundamentally broken because <laughs> because that's such a that's such a blanket like um you know, it's it's using a sledgehammer for jobs where where you should be able to use a, a finishing hammer. You know, like like to say yeah. like I want to just nobody nothing should come through to me um, is is such an aggressive way to uh, <laughs> to, to block a tool yeah. from communicating with you. So um, I think the inbox is is an important part, and the the trick is going to be figuring out how to actually uh, deliver on that promise of of prioritizing things. Um, and probably, honestly, like really low priority things should probably be rolled up into a digest of some kind. So it's not just, um, you know, littered with hundreds of items all the time. Yeah. Because um, I think that's why a lot of people hate emails because they struggle to get to inbox zero. Um, yeah. 
So there's there's a lot of nuance there to figure out, but that's kind of the general idea behind the inbox. Yeah, I like the idea too of um, with like an actual email. It's up to you as the recipient to sort of prioritize. You know right. what I mean? So I can say like, so I'm filtering through 50 emails I got since I last checked my inbox. It's mm-hmm. my job to sort of be like, okay, this is high priority. This is not, and you have to spend time doing that. Whereas it sounds like your approach is going to be more like the person sending the message is kind of going to decide whether it's high priority or low priority, which removes that yeah. work from your plate a little bit. Yeah. Like I think, you know, that that could get abused. Like think of like Outlook, you know, be, the ability to mark an email as important. Like I think yeah. probably got to the point where most of the time people are just marking their stuff as important because they felt like it would give it more weight in mm-hmm. the inbox. So I think there's, you know, there's a certain amount of, of um, thought that needs to be put into how these things are named. Like I think to, for, for example, an actual emergency should be like toggle this is an emergency and not so benign sounding as just like at channel you know what i mean totally yeah (laughs) it needs needs to make someone think twice before they click that button is this really an emergency Um, yeah yeah just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is rollbar so here's what paul the founder of circle ci had to say about one of their favorite features of rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at circle ci before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors. And it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language. Because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. Uh, jumping back a little bit, you mentioned like one example of communication that could happen is someone basically saying, uh, I'm blocked by Derek on this thing, and yeah. you know that should be kind of like... Uh, brought to your attention yep do does that sort of communication all go in like the engineering group or like is that is that the only sort of content that like feeds the inbox Mm -hmm. or is there like other places where messages get posted outside of groups that could still like come to your inbox like if someone just wants to talk to you for something yeah, I haven't I haven't figured out exactly what this looks like, but there needs to be a notion of of basically private messaging. Mm-hmm. And I think the piece that um, that I haven't quite nailed down is like how to um, encourage people not to overuse private messaging because I think there is kind of a middle ground. Um, one of the things that that Slack is so good at is is like. Um, helping to break down silos, you know, and yeah. email is by default, very siloed where if you're not on the chain, then you're, you're missing the information, you know, and, and Slack sort of, um, 
I mean, the search is not very functional, but theoretically is a searchable archive of knowledge built up over time, right? And so I think there's a lot of things where it's like, I want to converse me and you because maybe we're working on a project together or something like that. But there's no reason why the conversation has to be private. Like it can be public. It just shouldn't be annoying everybody else. Totally. You know? Yeah. And I think that's like Slack is very bad at offering a way to have that type of conversation because if uh-huh. you're if you're in a main channel like yeah everyone's gonna get spammed with that yep. um so i think there needs to be kind of that middle ground mode of like one-on-one communication happening in a public forum but then there also of course needs to be truly private um you know one-on-one communication as well yeah and all of those things would flow into the inbox so that when when i log in you know i could pop around and look at groups and see what's what's happening in in them directly but really all i should need to do is check the inbox and see like what's been happening that needs my attention got it so with the the inbox kind of metaphor the one thing that i think isn't clear to me yet is does everything that you haven't read go into the inbox in one way shape or form or if someone posts and say like the engineering group and you're an engineer but they don't like tag you or whatever the mechanism is for that would you just not be notified about that yeah so i think um I think that would be an example of something, depending on whether it's uh, whether it's like an open question, like asking the room, like I have a question versus something that's just like um, water cooler type talk or just like show and tell like, hey, this is something cool I built. Like, I think there's those would have different priority in the inbox, I would hope. But um, I think for the truly low priority things where it's just it's just knowledge being thrown out there or or work being shown like um, I think it would be too much to put each of those as a discrete item in the inbox. I think there needs to be some kind of rolled up digest item in the inbox. So like as you're scrolling through, you're seeing your, your high priority things first, and then you get down to the bottom and it's like, Hey, there were, there were 25 posts in the engineering channel and here's a few of them maybe like ranked based on engagement or reactions or something like that. And then, you know, you can expand that to see all of them or you can just sort of like cruise past them and dismiss it from your inbox. Totally. So then do you envision like the inbox, like not necessarily being updated in real time? Like I'm trying to think of like with Slack, like one of the problems is like you're constantly checking to see if like new stuff has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you envision this being more like users can trust that there's sort of like this promise that like you don't have to worry about that because like three times a day or twice a day or something, you're just going to get like one update there that you can go check then before lunch or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to infuse in some notion of like, what's my cadence? Like how often do I want to check my inbox and maybe I can configure that, um, you know, each person can configure their own settings on that. Yeah. And then maybe I get a notification right before lunch and then a notification at three thirty in the afternoon or some, you know, some healthy amount of time before the end of my day to like, Oh, by the way, there's been some activity, go check it out. And, um, you know, that gives you enough time to respond to things that maybe you want to follow up on before the end of the day. Um, but you know, and, and I would love for that to be even like, um, you know, maybe you can configure it so that when you click over to the tab, like the app is like locked or something. And it's like, no, no, don't come check me. You're you're yeah. supposed to be working right yeah, now. That's kind of what I mean. Like, I you almost know? wonder if like the stuff shouldn't even be there. Like, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, like you mean, like, or like you're saying, like, it gets unlocked at a certain period of time or, you know, as someone posts in the group, like, say four things get posted. Should there be four things that showed up in the inbox or should it just be, yeah. you know, if 
you're only updating it periodically, like polling basically, even though of course it wouldn't have to be implemented like that, but like conceptually, right. Purely for the purpose of like avoiding disruptions and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's interesting for sure. Yeah. And I think there's, so I think in, in general, there's an opportunity here to build very opinionated software that, mm-hmm. that infu- that like is infused with certain best practices in them. And one of them being like, like, for example, there's not going to be any red dot, you know, anytime totally. <laughs> like, like in Slack where like one thing happens now there's a red dot in my tool, in my taskbar at the bottom. And like, I just, it just makes me itch until I go yeah. clear, you know, <laughs> like, so definitely not that, um, you know, no presence indicators unless, so here's another here's another concept. Um, just stepping back real quick. Yeah, I think like it should like going into synchronous mode should be a deliberate, um, you know, deliberate action. So that you know there are times where, like you know, maybe a, a team of people want to discuss hash something out in real time, whether it's like a brainstorming session or or responding to an incident or something like that. But um, you know, I think it should be like a very deliberate click this this conversation thread into synchronous mode. And now, like, maybe you can alert people at that time. It's like, okay, now we're talking in real time. Get Everyone gets an alert who should be involved. And only then do you see presence indicators on, like, who's actually present right now yeah. for the synchronous conversation. Um, but otherwise, I don't think, you know, if it truly is an async-first tool, there's really no need to display who's currently online. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, something you mentioned there that I think would be interesting to get into more is the idea of just, like, making it, opinionated right yeah so i guess something i would like to know more about um as like a introduction to that topic is you're building this like for development teams right like that's kind of like your market so what sort of opinions like that make it specific to that problem are Mm -hmm. you thinking about incorporating you know like what sort of stuff makes it unsuitable for a team that's not actually developing a product but just wants to have like a facebook group you know what i mean yeah well i think um so i think one of the aspects is that you know a lot of what we do as software engineers is suitable for asynchronous um like a lot of the transfer of knowledge is suitable for asynchronous and that's not necessarily true for i don't know say like a maybe a marketing agency or something sure. where it's like highly collaborative and um, you know, you should be like constantly interrupting each other all day long with new ideas. Like um, I'm sure like other industries, there's like real time chat is probably not so much a problem and maybe that's, maybe it's perfectly suitable. So I think the fact that like it is so heavily, um, you know, asynchronous by default just kind of makes it um, really only suitable for certain types of industries. Um, I also think like, the the way integrations are going to work with it um it's a, it's an area i'm still exploring and i have some different ideas about it because like i found it interesting in talking to folks to to find out like what integrations are most valuable for you because i think a lot of people's temptation is just to wire everything up because pretty much everything integrates with slack but yeah. then then they find out that like, yeah, I have like 20 things integrated and eh, we only use like two or three. And the, the big ones are, you know, continuous integration, um, the source control system like GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever. Um, and maybe like Google Docs or some other, you know, uh, document management platform. And those are the main ones. And oh, and, and other things like incident monitoring or exception tracking. So I think, you know, there's there's an opportunity here to to think about um you know, if people want to use 
a tool like level or slack as like a way a place to aggregate shared uh notifications then um you know there's an opportunity here to to think about it in terms of what does a software developer want to want to see like is it a dashboard of statuses that then you can drill down into sort of like the change log over time um and i think when you're building a general purpose like this is a tool where work happens for any industry there's it's much harder to sort of craft the tooling specifically yeah. for the for the developer use case um so how do you see it integrating with someone's like regular kind of like project management workflow like is this something that people are going to use alongside like github issues or trello or something like that like are you like are you interested in sort of like stepping into that territory of like keeping track of like tasks and stuff like that or are you trying to create more of like a clean separation between this is just like company communication about projects and then this is like the tickets you know what i'm saying yeah that's a that's a great question i mean so I would love for there to be just a very clean separation. Like if we're talking about a pull request, it should always happen on the pull request itself. Um, and, you know, but I think there's also this interesting um, interplay between your communication tools and like notifications from external tools that I think is still a, a pretty unsolved problem. Like, um, you know, I know some folks rely on the email notifications from github into their email inbox to know when they need to go um you know follow up on a pull request conversation for example yeah but there's there's this inherent disconnect between like you know i can go read this thing in my inbox but that doesn't uh well maybe it does clear the notification on github I'm not, i don't think it does actually right so if you go if you go read an email um, notification from GitHub. It's still like an unread thing on yeah, GitHub. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, and so you, you're kind of missing that two-way synchronization. And um, I think it'd be really fascinating if um, if Level could still be a place that like it's the place that tells you what's on your plate from all your various tools. Like um, you know, if I could go to my Level inbox and see that there are you know five pull requests that are awaiting my review, for example. And, um, and that can be the jumping off point for that. I think there's an interesting opportunity to, to sort of centralize stuff there. Um, but I think it's always going to be tricky to know, like, yeah, should I start a new conversation on level about this or should I have the conversation on GitHub? Um, so I think, yeah, that's still kind of an unsolved problem. Yeah, for sure. So I'd love to know more about just like where are you at with this like right now? What sort of problems are, are you uh, tackling and decisions mm-hmm. are you making on the product currently? Yeah, so um, the biggest thing I'm doing right now, so I, I sort of laid the foundations for the product. Um, I spent a good like nine months playing around with some of the technologies I want to use to build it uh, while I was still at Drip, just doing this nights and weekends to scratch my creative itch. Um, and I kind of used that as a jumping off point for like the uh, kind of the foundations for the application. So I'm starting now to kind of build build out the domain a little bit. You know, I'm building groups. I'm building the ability to post to a group and and like making sure that that can pipe down in real time to the user interface and getting that whole loop completed. Um, but it's still pretty early on, and I want to try to keep uh, you know user feedback as part of the development cycle. Um, and so I think the next the next piece I'm I'm going to do is um, planning to build out some some mock-up flows uh, 
on like specifically around various types of communication and how they flow through the app uh, with regard to, you know, inbox and notifications and just sort of put it in front of people and see how how it feels um, and get some feedback from folks. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, So here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, So you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, With Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, This is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, So there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API that's really just scratching the surface but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions you can crop images using face detection so just crop to the faces in an image Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that it's a seriously impressive service so Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos yeah did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff not just with images but also with videos too Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan Uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show Something I would really love to get into uh, is the tech stack and stuff that you're using, but I have another topic that I think would be uh, good to get into before we get into that. Totally. And that is that you've made the decision to like fully open source this whole thing, yeah. which uh, honestly, like I don't even really know of any other examples of like SaaS businesses or uh, you know startups that have yeah. like open source, like their entire core product, even a company like Buffer who are, you know, uh, more transparent than any company I've ever seen, yeah. uh, doesn't open source code uh, for their core product. So what was the decision process going into deciding to just make the whole thing? Like, I think it's even MIT licensed on GitHub, right? Yeah, or it's Apache too, but it's okay. similar to MIT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So someone could still host it themselves commercially yeah. and stuff if they wanted to. Yep. Yeah. So um, great question. I think one was like, uh, so I'm, I'm competing with Slack and I'm not trying to compete directly with all of Slack's business, but even trying to carve out a niche of Slack's business, I knew was going to be an uphill battle. So, yeah. you know, part of this was thinking like, how can I be radically different than Slack and what's going to appeal to my 
uh, user base uh, the most. And I think, you know, especially since I'm selling to developers, I think this probably wouldn't have nearly the impact that I'm hoping it's going to have um, if I weren't selling to developers. But because my audience is people who, you know, are working with technology and are very, um, you know, very much in the open source ecosystem, I knew that this would be this would be a draw for folks. And um, I've just seen, you know, transparency work so effectively in so many, uh, so many different ways. Like you talked about transparency of, of business numbers and transparency of process. And, um, you know, really the, what I'm betting on with this is that, um, is that the core value of the business is not in the code, but it's in the service provided around the code. Um, you know, and, and sort of like, logically it made sense to me that like uh you know for example at drip while i was there if we were looking to switch to a different platform like level uh, we definitely would not be eager to go stand up our own cluster of servers download the source code deploy it there make sure we have updates and security update uh flows in place so that we can you know patch the software uh, as releases come out and on and on and on like i just I couldn't see us wanting to waste our time doing that because it's so outside of our, um, you know, our core mission to build marketing automation software. So yeah. I think like a company like Drip would would a hundred percent just pay for a hosted version of the product and not bother downloading it. Yeah. But if you're if you're a tiny bootstrap company that that would rather you know spend the time and and money on servers to host it themselves, like by all means do it because. Um, you know, that company probably wouldn't be paying a subscription fee anyways, <laughs> because, you know, maybe they're budget constrained. Yeah. So I think it's like charge the people who have the the means and the the will to pay for it and everyone else like have it for free, you know, and 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 maybe someday you will end up in a situation where like you've fallen in love with the product and now you're in a context where like it makes sense to pay for the hosted sure. version of it. Yeah. Like it doesn't um, make sense for someone to waste a day yeah. every month patching updates when we could just pay 150 right. bucks a month for the team or whatever and just be done. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what do you see the sort of like community aspect of open source? Like how mm-hmm. how is that going to be involved? Like do you expect there to be people like opening issues on the repo and submitting pull requests and stuff yeah. like that? So it's actually, it has started to happen already, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, one guy, his name is Devin. He's kind of in the Elixir community. And um, I think he just heard about it. I did one of the customer calls with him, actually, I think. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, like um, I open sourced the code and he made a few small contributions, like adding adding a static analysis tool into the build pipeline. And um, he will from time to time pop in on a pull request that I throw up there right now. I'm just like reviewing my own pull requests, but, <laughs> but he will occasionally pop in and just uh, uh, make comments here and there on like, Oh, you could do it this way. or You could do it that way. And that's been really cool. Um, I think that's, you know, prime example of open source working well. Um, yeah. I am a little bit, um, I'm thinking about it a little bit differently than I, I probably would about like an open source library where it really is a community effort. Like yeah. this is, this is a product. Um, it's not a library and you know, I'm carefully thinking about how the product's going to work. So I'm not, I'm not so much looking for like the community to necessarily be coming up with their own features and implementing them and, you know, think of this as like a, we all have shared ownership of the code base. I'm thinking about it like that, less so and and more like 
Um, this is open source, so you can you can know exactly what's going on with your data. Um, you know, you can. I hope this will be a code base that will be a great example of like a full production product built in these technologies, um, and and just sort of like a way to build trust with the community. And I think I I do want to offer some like um, some less uh, ambitious issues for people to contribute if they you know if they want to and mm-hmm. so there's been already some interest from people like hey i just want to like get involved in some way um you know are are there some small like maintenance type things i can do on the code base just to just to get my feet wet in the code and so um i would like to have a goal of mine is to have you know some like good first issues out there for people who want to make small contributions yeah because um, there's definitely like a difference like you're saying between like adding new product decisions to the product yeah. versus yep. just making improvements that maybe this is a performance improvement or right. uh, you know, we fixed like some unnecessary database query or just, you know, anything that could just sort of like tune what's there without introducing any new opinions. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's, I mean, I've, I found it to be a challenge like, um, you know, at Drip, we had a few open source things like our, our Ruby API wrapper and stuff like that. And we would from time to time get um, get folks wanting to contribute or filing issues on like some more uh, like larger scoped projects that they wanted to take on. And it was always difficult to mesh that up with our actual like product roadmap and kind of the priorities we had for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one way that I can kind of like um, interface with the community is to try to make some of that some of the roadmap stuff at least at a high level also open and transparent so people can kind of know like where my priorities lie and I can kind of point back to that if if there are people who are wanting to you know like bite bite off some large project right now and it's like you know this is not exactly where I'm focusing my energy on the product right now Um, yeah, I think there's just a big difference in general. Like, I think there's two types of open source projects, right? Which is, there's no way to sort of show this on like a GitHub repo, but there's a lot of like open source because we want it to be like a community project and we welcome contributions in any way, shape or form sort of thing. And then there's like open source because like, I don't really have a good reason for it to be closed source, which doesn't mean that it belongs to anyone but me. Like it's just my project. I'm doing what I want with it and building it the way I want. But like, there's no downsides that I can really think of to keeping it private. So, yep. and there's upsides to making yep. it open. So why not just make it open? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so do you have any like of your own apprehensions about open sourcing the thing? Like what are some of the things that you were worried mm-hmm. about or, and why aren't you worried about them now? Or maybe what are some of the things that you're still worried about? Yeah. So I think, you know, like one concern with transparency in general is uh, attracting competition who are going to take that information take those learnings and use them to use them against you basically um which i think is by and large a um a fear that usually doesn't come to fruition you know um yeah but it is still a concern like i i can't imagine all the ways that people could possibly screw me over using my own work against me but i'm sure there are some ways that it could happen um you know i think like like if someone were to clone the code base right now and just rename it and then create a hosted service and start trying to compete with me directly. Um, I still think that, you know, I have the product vision and I know what things I'm going to build next and kind of like, 
and I'm building the trust in the brand with the community. So I think that that would likely not succeed. Like, I don't think that's actually a real concern. Totally. Um, but it still is a theoretical concern, you know? Um, I think another one is the fact that it's open source. There are going to be some folks who are, who are much more adamant about the concept that all software should be free. You know, um, there are definitely those in the open source community and they may see my, uh, you know, kind of hybrid, like open source code base, but I'm, you know, launching a paid service as somehow like, um, you know, fraudulent or, or not really truly open source, uh, to the core, you know? And, um, I know there has been a fair amount of trolling of, of other companies that have kind of chosen this model. Um, and so that could be a bit of a bummer. Um, I think the company ghost actually, they just recently published a sort of a summary of their last few years and they've reached some pretty impressive revenue milestones, but they sort of talked about that being a challenge of like uh, sort of the the open source entitlement that comes about from people just you know flaming them on social media for not like listening to them or building the features that they wanted them to build yeah and and um you know that can that can sometimes happen so that's a little bit of a concern too yeah yeah definitely i could see that but yeah, I don't know. It, it Ghost is a good example, actually. And I also, uh, Discourse came to mind. So I know mm-hmm. earlier I said I couldn't think of any like open yeah. source SaaS apps or startups, but those are two uh, good examples of that if anyone yep. else is interested in looking at other businesses that, that work that way. Um, yeah, is there any anything else with the, uh, the open source stuff that kind of makes you apprehensive? Um, yeah, I think like, I think those are the main ones. Like, um, yeah, people like it, it. I guess the other concern is like if if there is a lot of interest in the project and there's just a lot of people filing issues or submitting you know unsolicited pull requests, like yeah, how much of a distraction will that be? Um, because I want to you know I want to be nice to folks in the community. I don't want to shut down people's efforts yeah. that are genuinely like in good faith. Um, but I also know that like especially early on, it's very important to keep it extremely tight. Uh, roadmap and sort of be a dictator about like what goes into the product. Yeah. And so I think that could be a, that could turn into a bit of a distraction or just like uh, just mental overhead on thinking about how to, how to not pe- make people upset or feel like they're not being valued or not being heard um, while still kind of maintaining a, a tight roadmap. Yeah. I think um, one interesting example of, uh, an open source project where I feel like they've done a good job making it clear that it's like sort of owned and there's like, like product development on the project mm-hmm. is like react. Mm. So as far as I understand, like react, uh, development of like new features that like the core team is working on, like doesn't always like happen on GitHub. It happens yeah. in like a private sort of internal, copy of the repository and then those things get like released to GitHub. Yep. you know what i mean which yep. i think i think has done a good job of like setting people's expectations in some ways around like who kind of has like control of direction of the project and and right. also just kind of making it clear that like okay there's like a team that's going to like be releasing the stuff that we should be excited about you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. not just like all coming from a bunch of different directions have you thought much about with the level code base like how real time are the updates to the GitHub going to be? Is there 
have you thought about like doing internal feature development and then like releasing stuff to GitHub only when it's like, okay, this is like in the product for, for real now, not just like an experimental branch or whatever. Yeah. I think I, I have thought a little bit about that so far. My mode has been just like, treat this as if it were a private code base and push to it all the time and, and, you know, move fast. But I think, um, you know, once there are more eyes on it and more people kind of, uh, interested in, uh, contributing and interested in pulling down the latest release and all that kind of stuff. Like I think, um, it may become more important as time goes on, uh, to, to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more deliberate about what goes on to GitHub, you know? Um, I know like, I think Elm actually has a similar, uh, a similar process too, which does, I know that frustrates some people in the community because they feel like, you know, it's predominantly the, the language creator, Evan, who is, is hacking on this language basically. And he does a lot of it, um, on, on private, uh, private forks and stuff. But I think, you know, it's like to each their own, you kind of have to do what you got to do to, to keep, keep the roadmap tight. So there you have it, folks. That's part one of my discussion with Derek about building Level. In part two, we get really deep into the tech stack behind Level, where Derek talks about building the back end using Elixir and Phoenix, the front end as an Elm SPA, and building a GraphQL API between the two for them to communicate. If you're interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 91. Thanks to Rollbar and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week. And I'll see you next time for part two of my discussion with Derek about building level.